This is Art Unbound, a joint production of Portland Art Museum and The Numbers FM. I'm Intisar Bioto, the guest curator for the exhibition Black Artists of Oregon on view September the 9th, 2023 through March 17, 2024. As an artist, my work has been grounded in research on the presence and persistence of Black artists in our region, and this podcast series focuses on these intergenerational voices. Uh, Well, welcome to this Black Artists of Oregon exhibition podcast, and today our guest is... Could you tell me your name? <laughs> I'm Damali Ayo. Okay, yes, yes. Thank you. I'm excited to have you here. Um, and just to talk about your art and experiences and insights. Um, yeah, so could you tell me, well, you already told me your name, but uh, you, well, where you're from and how you consider considered your kind of, kind of like your mediums throughout, like kind of like throughout your life. Or you like now or... Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can. Uh-huh. Um, it's wonderful to be here with you, Intisar. Mm-hmm. I love talking to you, so this is great. Um, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., um, which is now a very different town than the town I grew up in. So I grew up, uh, which it was a very um, disparate experience for me because mm-hmm. I grew up in an all-black neighborhood. Um, and... Then I went to private school, first in Bethesda, Maryland, and then in in uh, another part of D.C. So I literally had to, like, cross Rock Creek Park to get to my school. So there was this, like, you know, one side of town and the other side of town. So I always grew up with a really um, racialized experience, to be perfectly honest. And my mother was really militant. So, like, there was she was always educating. She was always in my school. She was always teaching black history. We had a black history bulletin board in our house. Um, we got quizzed on Black History flashcards. Like I grew up in a way extremely black mm-hmm. intellectually, mm-hmm. but because my parents were members of the Nation of Islam, I didn't grow up with like Southern black culture as as people define black culture these days, mm-hmm. which is like food, mm-hmm. right? Like we didn't like when they had black that horrible black history lunch in my school and they served like collard greens cooked in pork. I couldn't eat them because you don't eat that stuff. Right. So there was always this disconnect of like, what does it mean to be black? How do you fit in? And um, and then and 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 that was always a, a dialogue in my life. Really, I never remember a moment of kind of innocence. So, you know, when I was and my mother's mother was white. So and her aunt who was the only relative from her family in our, our life, was white. And my white aunt gave me black Raggedy Ann and Andy dolls and two sets, one to play with at home and one to take to school because I was not allowed to play with white dolls. Mm-hmm. So I had to import my own brown dolls to school so I would have something to play with mm-hmm. during playtime. Mm-hmm. So all I say all this to say, like, you know, creating art about race was kind of where I started, you know, to me to walk in with dolls. It was like, so, you know, later in my work and in, in 2003, or I had a show where I, I went back to those, in that case, gollywog blackface dolls. So mm-hmm. there's always been the, my regular aunts were awesome, but those, mm-hmm. so anyway, the, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. So, so I've always been really creative. Although like in my family, I was labeled like the, the scientist, I was supposed to be a scientist. I don't know why that was the path that they chose for me. I think because I was just really uh, smart. Mm-hmm. like, And so I was never, 
and it was never a possibility that I could be an artist, mm-hmm. but I was like, I was always making everything. Um, I was six years younger than my sisters, so I had a lot of hand-me-downs. I had a lot of second-hand things, and I was always transforming them to work for me. Mm-hmm. I was always making my own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I designed my own men's clothing line for mm. my male dolls. Wow. <laughs> so, like, yeah, it was just always really natural, but never identified. So I never took an art class because nobody said, hey, you're an art- maybe you should take an art class. Um I never, like never, all the way through college, I could have taken uh, classes at RISD when I was there and when I was at Brown, and I never, it never occurred to me that I might be an artist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even though everything I did was always at that level, at that kind of expression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a long answer. Yeah, no, that, that's you can a edit great that answer. Out. <laughs> yeah, I, I wow. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm interested in how. And even though it's going back, not forward yet, and how bl- black people came through, came to this place where they're where they were from, where their folks were coming from, like what, how, well, where were your people, like where were your folks from? Were they from the D.C. area? Is that where they were from? Right. So my mother grew up in Philadelphia. My father was born in Mississippi. Okay. His father was a sharecropper. Okay. And. Oh, my God, my grandpa, he's amazing, man. Like, he literally, he was a sharecropper, and as sharecropping goes, sorghum, I think is what he, he mm-hmm, cropped, he, mm-hmm. he farmed. Um, you know, you, you, did, you never got your fair share of the profits. Mm. So one day he had enough, and he was like, I'm going to go get my gun. Like, he's like, I'm going to go get my gun, and I'm going to, like, confront, you know, the landowner. Mm-hmm. And his friends, knowing his personality, were like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, you're not going to do that. And word got out, and, and the, the, the story in the family is like the clan found out, and they started to come after my grandfather, and his friends were like, you got to go, and like just rushed him out of town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he ended up in Iowa, like part of the Great Migration, mm-hmm. and left my grandmother back home to just like pop the babies out. Um, well, I guess she already had popped a bunch of babies. My grandmother said once, I said, um, she said, I, I figured I was going to be having a lot of babies, so I better figure out how to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> So she just, like, I was like, when was my, you know, when was my dad born? She's like, I'm not totally sure because I don't remember the day exactly. You know, it was like that. Yeah, wow. So he goes up to Iowa, works for John Deere Tractor for a long time, and then he becomes, he gets called, and he becomes a minister, and he spends the rest of his life as a Baptist minister, and then she and the whole family go join him. So my story is really entrenched in, like, that piece of blackness. Okay. And then, and then my... I guess he went to, my dad went to college at UPenn and he met my mom. They were all living in the one apartment building that, where black people could live. And um, they fell in love. They have a little drama I won't get into, but like, they fell in love and then they ended up in Washington, D.C. Okay. Got you. Got you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, with your, you know, your art, you're saying you were making art and uh, they thought you would be a scientist and, you know, you're kind of talking about how you were making art, but it wasn't through classes or schooling, um, did you, and I know, I think you mentioned something about, well, did you envision ever, like, in the process of, like, doing the things you were doing and um, the art you were making, did you have any kind of vision of what your art would be like in the future, or was it just, I'm making art right now, or was it like, I would like to do this, like, and if so, what was what were those things? That's a really interesting question. So 
the piece that I think is funny about being a scientist is we had these two little rooms next, like that went off of our basement. One was my dad's workshop and one was like a storage room. But we, we somehow they set up a little desk for me where I could like experiment and do little <laughs> like, you know, so I did these little chemical experiments mm-hmm. and I tried to make my own bubble gum and I was trying to invent stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And, but up above that desk, I had a quote from Shakespeare. I'm like eight, you know, I'm like quoting Shakespeare, double, double toil and trouble, the three witches of Shakespeare. So I think I used to joke like they said I wanted to be a scientist, but really I wanted to be a witch, you know, like really I just wanted to be like making Mm. stuff out of nothing, Mm. I think. So um, that was where it started. Like, you know, I would just, whatever I had available to me, I would make stuff out of, which is how I continue throughout my life as an artist so I did not have a vision of the um types of things I would make and I was also always writing but I remember being in class in seventh grade and my English teacher Sally Selby said something about artists and you know I think she might have referenced like having to work another job or something and I was my brain I remember I remember this moment being like oh hell no like if I'm gonna be an artist I'm gonna be a full-time artist I will do everything it takes to do nothing but work like I understood what it meant in my bones to be be an artist Mm -hmm. and I knew that there was no space for anything else and so that was my heart's desire Mm -hmm. was to be a hundred percent committed and focused Mm -hmm. that I felt and I look back at that moment that's the moment I think I knew I was an artist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. That's that's so appropriate here thinking about uh the chemistry and the science and the that quote and 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 like being a witch is somebody who could just make things up and there is that there is science to making art of creation and things that are being revealed that yeah. you know or don't know. That's such a yeah. Beautiful corollary that I hadn't thought about. And also having a witch involved in there. And um, Shakespeare. Yeah. I mean, I was a huge Shakespeare fan at like eight years old. I remember when there was a $20 book at the bookstore. It was like, I still have this. It was it was stories of Shakespeare. And I'm like, Mom, I really want that book. I really want this book. And she was like, that's $20. Like, you better read that book You know, if we get it for you. And I remember lusting after it for the longest time. And I, and she finally bought it for me and I still have it. Wow. In fact, I gave, I, I gave it to my neighbor before I left Portland. I gave it to my neighbor across the street because she was also another smart little girl. And then I got to the, the small town I live in and I realized I didn't have it. And I called up her dad. I was like, you got to send that back. <laughs> it's horrible. I needed that book, you know. So yeah, it was like and um and the witch thing too uh I think also goes to and I think this is why I'm a conceptual artist. Mm-hmm. When people say what's your art? What's your medium? I'm like I mess with people's minds. Mm-hmm. The witch thing too is like influencing others, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like how can I t- how can I use some kind of magic mm-hmm. because the material ways of achieving things aren't working. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what the witch does. That's when yeah. you go to the witch. Yeah, ooh. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Yeah. That's something. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I love how these stories dip in and out. Uh, gosh. Um, so, like, okay, ooh, in your world as a young person, you know, developing your art or your or your witchery or your science, 
in ways you perceived or didn't perceive, were there artists or scientists or other other witch-like folks who were inspiring to you or who you feel like left you with nuggets of inspiration or anything? Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I grew up on mounds of black history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there wasn't a book report. I couldn't, you know, everything had to be about Big Black. So I had a lot of heroes to choose from, actually. And Garrett Morgan was my guy. So he invented the traffic light and the re- and also the gas mask mm-hmm. and other things. But those are the two big ones. So the reason I find him the most, I found him the most fascinating mm-hmm. was because, you know, the traffic light came after cars, after car accidents. Mm-hmm. It solved a problem. And he had to figure out, like, look, we this. How do we make this efficient? How do we make it work? Mm-hmm. How does it change our culture? Mm-hmm. It was a cultural in, influence. This mm-hmm. invention. It wasn't just, you know. Now all the inventions are for more convenience, you know, and making mm-hmm. people's lives lazier. Mm-hmm. But he was like, we got a problem. Like we're not caught up. There's this thing called cultural lag when the invention happens and then the results. Like, the society actually isn't prepared for the invention. So hmm. we got the car, but hmm. we actually weren't prepared for accidents. We yeah. didn't know that would happen. So then we had to figure out what to do. So that's interesting. And the gas mask, the way he designed that was like it was this thing that went over your face with a long tube to the ground because the gas rises. So the hmm. air on the floor was cleaner. Hmm. Hmm. And it was just so simple. Yeah, elegant. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, wow. Those kind of elegant... Um, designs were always really interesting to me. Mm. And so that's why, so yeah, science slash inventor, I think they always thought I was going to be. And also I think, now I can't, I don't actually remember this, but I also remember listening to Dick Gregory albums. (laughs) I can't tell you what he said, but I've always also appreciated the elegance of a perfect joke. Mm. You know what I mean? And the elegance of humor that makes you think. And so there's something that's, like, when you can achieve all of that, you know, like the witch's potion, you want to have the smallest amount of ingredients mm, possible, mm. kind of, you know, to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Gosh. I'm going to be thinking about that a little bit, letting it that simmer, those things that you said about elegance and across form. Uh, wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well... Um, okay, so you were a young person and you were you went you went to Brown, is that what you said? And you know, you weren't taking art classes. What classes were you taking? I took public policy. I had a double major, public policy and American civilization, which was history and literature, and my focus was on race, class, gender, and sexual orientation. So I studied culture. It's different than what kids are doing these days, which is autoethnography, which is basically studying yourself. And I think there's a real danger to that. Mm. Um, but I also think I did what was easy. Like I had been working in race, you know, without getting paid for most <laughs> of my life. Right. So I was like, well, I'm still interested in that. And I think I was interested in people, culture, because I always joke that like I got straight C's in public policy because I kept being like, well, how does this affect the people? Like, we had to write a paper on the on the idea of the welfare queen. And I was like, so the welfare queen is a social construct. Like, I told, the, mm-hmm. and my teacher gave me a bad grade because mm-hmm. she thought it was real and she wanted me to write a, so that was my conflict 
in that half of my major and then I got straight A's. I ended up with a B average. Like I got straight A's in my other stuff because we were always talking about like how people affect each other and mm. that was really interesting to mm. me. And I, mm. and then my kind of third major was I worked at the um, Center for Community Service um, for the first two years just doing all kinds of service and then then the last two years I worked with women in prison doing theater there. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of where I spent most of my time and energy. Okay. When was this that, that, that you were in school? Like what years? 1990 through 94. Okay. Gotcha. 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 Wow. Right when the last good music was being made. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. So like, I remember hearing about you and your work when I was in college, and I feel like I had to have been, like, a sophomore or junior at Wesleyan in Connecticut, and there was someone, I actually have photos of this, there was someone who I went to school with who was seated outside of, like, one of the campus buildings, uh, panhandling for reparations. (laughs) They were asking for dollars and... And I was like, this is so interesting. And I was taking a lot of photographs on campus that day. So I actually have photos somewhere in my in my archive of, of this person doing this. Amazing. And I don't know, gosh, I guess that would have been after some of other of your, no, that definitely would have been after some of your other. It was other, 2007. Yeah, after some of your other well-known works. Yeah. But what was your journey after college and how did you come to Oregon? Okay. First of all, that piece was 2007. I had done earlier my panhandling for reparations piece. And what we did was a national day of panhandling for reparations where I I let everybody download the instructions and signs. Mm -hmm. And then we, people did it all over the country. That is so cool. Um, I wonder if it was, oh, Ruby Beth. It, Probably was. Yes. In my mind, I was like, was this Ruby Beth? But I think it was also someone else. It was two of them, yeah. Yes, there was someone else. We joked because we, we were all biracial, and so they were like, we were handing dollars to each other. <laughs> Did you come? Were you there? I wasn't there, but the two of them joked that to me. But okay, she, but we yes. All, yes. Okay, Ruby yes. Beth, so we someone can't. else there, and it's been a long time. I don't It's been 15 years since I graduated, yeah. so... I remember people, but sometimes names escape me because, hey, COVID brain. But I do remember there was someone else. There's someone else with her. I can't remember that person. I didn't know. I knew Ruby Beth. I had met Ruby Beth. Mm-hmm. So she she was always, she was one of these lovely people that got introduced to my work and then knew I was a real person. Mm-hmm. So stayed in touch with me and we mm-hmm. talked. And so she was right there when I was developing that piece. Wow. That's something. I didn't know that detail. Yeah, she's I definitely cool. remember the... First person, their their faces in my in my mind and the image, and then and then when we were talking, I was like, I also feel like it was Ruby, but but I didn't, I don't know that I have photos of Ruby Beth, but that's wild. That does make sense that that would have been two thousand seven, yeah, because I would have been like a a junior, yeah, so. that's right. Wow, it was the fall, so it was yes. Columbus Day. Absolutely, it was fall vibes. That's wild. So <laughs> little connections, yeah. Wow, that. Ooh. Okay, that makes sense. You would know Ruby Beth because, yeah, wow, gosh. She was cool, too. Gosh, wow, okay. So, yeah, so um, coming back to when you kind of left school and what was your journey into what, who you were oh. and what you were doing? and Yeah, oh, right. Okay, so I was working with women in prison. That was my passion. 
And I actually, oh my God, I forgot about this. I actually had applied for this really prestigious fellowship called the Echoing Green Fellowship. And, and my path, you know, my family thought I was going to be a scientist, but everybody who knew me thought I was going to be like the head of a nonprofit because I was just so, you know, social change focused. Mm -hmm. So I had I made the proposal to start a nonprofit for women transitioning out of prison. It was called Commonplace. We were going to start an organization because um, there was no support network for women getting out. Getting out was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a uh, shock to the system, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why so many women end up back in prison. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just they don't know how to function or they go back for the stability or community. It's not like they're choosing, but it's like their path doesn't have another way of being. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I had all these women on my board that were friends. One was my partner. One was another woman who was obsessed with my partner. And I sat in this board meeting one day, all these lesbians, and me included, and and I just looked and I just saw how small and insular and drama this was. And I I'm not doing this. And so I wrote, the Echoing Green Foundation, and I sent the money back. <laughs> I think I'm the first person in the history of the earth. I had spent like a couple thousand dollars of it. I sent it all back. Wow. <laughs> I was just like, this is not the life I want. I don't know. I just knew. I never forget that moment sitting in the Women's Center at Brown with my board and just being like, no. And I'm really glad because those women, I, I I wish I could say I loved them all. I don't really. But, like, they were toxic. It would have been a really bad sitch. So I had an instinct, and I got out. And I, and then I, I guess that was, that must have been after I graduated. So long story short, after I graduated, I was so burnt out from studying social change and being such an, this, you know, this big activist, you know, just starting so many things on, well, I don't know, being part of starting things on campus. Like, we started the first campus organization for queer students of color we set the template for that mm-hmm. it was that time in the 90s we set a lot of templates mm-hmm. you know in my career I got to set a lot of templates mm-hmm. you know and um I was burnt and I so I ran off to a farm in Maine so I was there you couldn't reach me it was a mile to the mailbox so I I, I think that's where I kind of started needing a deeper um more soul driven life, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, I've always been really driven from my inner world, mm-hmm. but I needed my outer world to reflect it more. Yeah. So when I came back, I got a job painting houses on an all lesbian paint crew. That was, they were less toxic, mm-hmm. they were more fun. It's a small community, I mean, it's a Providence, Rhode Island, right? It's a small community. Mm-hmm. Of lesbians, <laughs> so and um, and that identity to me was also really shifting because I you know identified then as bisexual, and that was also it's still not an identity people understand. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mm-hmm. stupid now. They still don't get it. And mm-hmm. back then it was really threatening and confusing, and my partners were uncomfortable and like it was a lot. Mm-hmm. So I had to try to fit in, and then realize I don't fit in. Mm. Um. Anyway, long story short. Uh, we broke up. I needed a change. Um, I moved to Chicago. Uh, and somewhere along that line, uh, I had a friend who, a white woman friend who just 
I don't know. It was like she was just this kind of. I had had so many white people, you know, say like, I don't understand race and I don't understand this and I don't understand racism. They don't understand. But there was something about talking to her. It was just like the last straw in a positive way Mm -hmm. that I had this vision of this piece of art that I was like, if I make this art, I can show her and I can leave the room and I can stop having this conversation. Mm. (laughs) And (laughs) that's what I did. I literally made the work, showed her I left the room. And she was like, oh, I understand now. And then I realized how powerful art making was for me, Mm -hmm. how it could really free me. And it did for a while, you know, mm-hmm. it could, I could put everything in there and I could stop having to repeat myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had to keep saying the same thing since I was four years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, I was having the same conversation with my four-year-old friend explaining to her why the difference between being white and peachy colored, right? That I'm having with the 30-year-old friend, you know, 26 years later, I was done. Yeah. So I needed to find a way to not have those conversations anymore. And art was how, that's how I started making art. Okay. Seems kind of strange, but yeah. Wow. What was that that you made that you, and then left the room? So when I was in eighth grade or seventh grade, that same um, English teacher, Sally Selby, mm-hmm. I loved her. Mm-hmm. She got pregnant, had a baby. All the teachers kept having pregnant and getting babies. I would knit them blankets and stuff. I mean, I was a really... I have this really big heart. So I was always knitting baby presents. Anyway, so she left and her cousin substituted teachers for her. And she was not good. Anyway, so we were reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, she didn't really know how to teach it. And I didn't like reading that book. I don't think I read the book. I found it so traumatizing. So I don't remember really reading it. But what I remember in the conversation in seventh grade, we were all sitting around this big table and one of the white people said the word nigger lover because that's really prominent in the book. Mm -hmm. And then another white person said it and then the teacher said it and then the white people kept saying it over and over. I was like, holy shit. They had this permission, right? Mm -hmm. They always wanted to say it, right? Now they could say it. And I remember Kim Yates. So I was always in seventh grade because Kim Yates was an eighth grader. Mm -hmm. I was scared of her. She was black. And she was tough. And I was terrified of her, right? But I looked her straight in the eye, and we bonded like, holy shit, we're in trouble now, you know? <laughs> I should never forget locking eyes with her. I'd be like, oh, no, the white people are loose, you know? It was terrifying. So the first art piece I made about race was to rip up the book To Kill a Mockingbird, and I put it on this big piece of wood. I highlighted that phrase everywhere, and I put these pictures of me in seventh grade just trying to be like a girl. Mm-hmm. Like the st- I was on the football team. I was one of the three girls to integrate the football team gender-wise. And so I had a picture of me in my football gear. I had a picture of me with some flowers. I had a picture mm-hmm. of me in the, like, my innocence mm-hmm. and how it was stolen so that was the first piece I made. And what to me, what was so important was because I was a really smart kid and because my family was kind of a mess, um, school was really important to me. It was the safe space. So now my safe space was compromised, mm-hmm. not only from my soul and my body and my mm-hmm. being, but now I don't have a safe learning environment. Mm-hmm. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm compromised because I'm scared and I have this, I, I don't know I remember Chris Burns saying nigger lover over and over. Mm. He was a nice little guy. Mm. Uh. You know, short, blonde. He used to do backflips in fifth grade. We had fifth grade together. Yeah, 
he's changed entirely now. I can't mm-hmm. see him the same. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my world really changed at that moment. Mm-hmm. Wow. Gosh. Okay. That's wild. I. Yeah. I and, too. Uh-huh, go ahead. And that piece was in my first show in Portland in the IFCC. Okay, yes. Anyway, go on. Okay, yes. Well, let's jump. Let's jump. No, I want you to, what did you say? Oh, I too. Oh, yeah. I too remember reading that book. And I wish I could say that I could tell you how I really felt about it. Because I don't remember. I remember it. And, but, and it's, I do love books. I love them. Uh, and I also love the idea of you ripping it up for the, I don't know, this is just me. Uh, not even because I'm feeling some kind of way about its content specifically, but more so because the I guess I'm drawn to textural things. Yeah. And that it still had, that it either still has resonance or has different resonance or it can be made to have no, have no resonance by changing the... There's just something about you ripping it up and bringing new context to it through your, what you're doing and your mm-hmm. image, and that's something. Yeah, it was fun. I tore out all the pages, and it was cool. It was just one of those little pocketbooks, so it was, the pages were all yellowed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, the texture was cool. Wow. That's something. Well, from there, how did you get to Oregon, and how did this piece get to the FCC? Like, what, you know, if... If, if so, Black Arts of Oregon, and you know, if I'm honest, for me, it's less about Oregon than about the black people in Oregon and their journey. Uh, but how did you get here from where all that was? I know. I was in Chicago dating a man, a white man with dreadlocks. That was something. <laughs> My friends were like, you hate that. And I was like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody could believe it. And that's very typical of my relationship. I'll be like, I'll never do that. I hate that. And that's who I end up dating, which is why now I'm a confirmed spinster. But um, and but I knew I didn't. I was living with my my friends. I was living in somebody's house, like at the top floor of there. And I, it was unsustainable. And he I had, had his family lived in Newport, Oregon. And um, and I was like. I got to get out of here. I got to go somewhere. So I started just kind of looking at jobs. At the time, I was reading this, like, feminist magazine. I think it was Sage Woman, and they were in Estacada, Oregon. So I knew that, and I wanted to apply to them for a job. I don't know. We packed up our trucks and moved. <laughs> like, uh, his family was there. We stayed with them. I applied for some jobs. I ended up getting one of them. And after I, we got here, we had no plan. And then I remember we, he and I together, um, and we went to see the IFCC. I talked, like we just went to see it, mm-hmm. and I talked to Roberta Wong, mm-hmm. who was the curator there. She's the loveliest person on the planet, and she's just got a spidey sense for artists. Mm-hmm. So she was like, "Why don't you apply?" So I remember I took pictures of this work. I had done, at the time, he, my boyfriend, that guy, he was, he was working in construction. So he used to bring me home giant pieces of wood. Mm-hmm. And I would just paint them and make stuff on them. So I'd done these, like, again, always found objects, always garbage. So the, the book piece was on that. I remember the, the background of that wood was green like a chalkboard. And so that one, I had another one about some stuff in my family. I had another one about this hate mail somebody had sent me. 
before I was doing work about race, he was mad at me about something else. Oh. <laughs> He actually sent it in the mail. That was like old school hate mail. Oh, <laughs> yeah, wow, that was that was bold. Uh. Anyway, he hated me, and so I made put made that into a piece of art. I was how I was there. It was therapeutic, mm-hmm. and um, so I took all these pictures. And I remember my boyfriend. He's like, you know, in art shows, you're supposed to submit slides, and I had blown them up into like colors, Xeroxes. That's how I put them in a portfolio. I didn't know what I was doing. I always learn as I go, and. And I remember he said, you're supposed to do slides. And I was feeling so unsupported. I was just like, we got a big fight. Anyway, I took my little portfolio of not slides to Roberta Wong. And she was like, wow, okay, yeah. And you gave me a show. (laughs) Like, she just knew. And and then she came over my play. Then I broke up with him, thank God. Moved down to this total dump in um, uh, North Portland. Like, I can't remember what street it was on. But it was really... I had no furniture. There were roaches. I yeah, it was a mess. But that's where I lived. And Roberta Wong, nobody came over my place because it was disgusting. I had no furniture, no place to sit. I had one rocking chair. Roberta Wong came over and she just looked at all my stuff I was making out of garbage because I had no budget, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and she said, okay, and, you know, in her little gentle way. And I she know. just said, I know, right? And she said, I don't know how, the sentence she used, but she basically said, you need to come off the wall. And she just said, you're, you're an installation conceptual artist, is what she basically told me. But the way she phrased it was like, you need to come, stop being two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And so what I did for IFCC, there was a, um, a really important article on racial identity development. Sorry, I sounded like I just burped, but I didn't. I just went. <laughs> um, there was a really important article on racial identity development that had influenced me a lot in college and had five stages of racial identity development. And I was mad at my friends who were white and just being stupid. And I wanted to make a statement. And so I decided to do this show for Roberta about racial identity development, even though at that point, the work I had wasn't focused on race. There was only that one piece. Mm-hmm. And so I made five installations based on each of these five points in this article. And I Xeroxed the article and it was available. And so the second one, I don't remember why it was called acceptance in the article, but the second one, I took that same piece with To Kill a Mockingbird, put that on the wall, and then I put two chairs in front of it with wax and um, nails poking out mm. and my own blood dripping off of it and that became the installation and that's how I became three-dimensional wow yeah because of Roberta gosh yeah Roberta's wonderful oh I gotta yeah she's amazing yeah yeah no for for folks uh I so IFCC is the Interstate Firehouse Cultural Center off of Interstate and I believe almost like Killingsworth uh that's that was started in the 80s um yeah 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 and there's other things um happening there now um with the interstate firehouse um grants and residency series and yeah so just a little plug for the ICC um yeah wow yeah so what year was that that you came to Oregon I came in I think it was 97 okay that's what I want to say yeah that makes sense Okay. Well, maybe 90, I got here in April, maybe 96. Let's see, I love it. So 96, 97, I can't remember. Okay. Yeah, I think it was 97. Okay. And um, and then that show was in, 
2000. Okay. So she probably booked me in, in actually probably a year ahead. It was in February of 2000, and she booked me probably early in 99 because then in the meantime, I walked into Mark Woolley Gallery with some work I was doing around gender and little black dresses. And, you know, these curators that are really outside the mainstream, you know, Mark Woolley was a social studies teacher. Mm -hmm. He did not come up through most of the art world channels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he had a a space in his life and his, in his gallery and his mind for those of us that were just kind of also not Mm -hmm. like that. So when I walked in and I like literally pulled out this this three dimensional black dress I had been working on and gluing nails to and stuff out of a bag, he was like, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So he gave me a three day show in between installations. Okay. Wow. During Rose festival. And we also did a, um, performance cabaret as a part of it at this strip club which was shocking because I hate strip bars so um yeah so Roberta booked me then I did the show at Mark's in between so that was technically my first solo show that three days and then and then um and then I had a show Roberta's and what was kind of crazy is and then there was a guy I think that's right the right timeline I don't remember. Maybe 99. Anyway, but then there was a guy that, um, a black curator who had a space on Alberta. Okay. And he gave me a two-person show. I don't remember his name, and he talked smack about me behind my back. So <laughs> so, so I don't have a fond memory of him, but the important thing about that is that um, that was my first official art opening. So maybe okay. the Mark Woolley show was later, but this first official art opening and I went, and then I ended up hanging out with friends of mine. They were having this party sleepover in Washougal, and at that party, I was sexually assaulted the night, like the weekend of my first, very first art opening. So it was a lot of, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot happening mm-hmm. all at once. My kind of arrival as an artist, yeah, had a lot happening. <sighs> Sorry, that yeah. was a long story. I'm a high, yeah, no. I'm a high context. No, no, I, I appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, no. What am I saying right now is that I appreciate it. It seems like, well, one, your memory is great. And the detail with what you're sharing and, and uh, gosh, I, I'm just listening. And mm-hmm. it's funny because I guess meta moment, but we're all meta because we're here. Uh, like, you know, you're doing a podcast and you're trying to, have good questions and be thoughtful, but you're also just a person here listening and hearing and being present and trying to be human. Yeah. So, um, yeah, gosh, wow. Well, what I, what I always got from you somehow was experience. Even before I met you, I don't know. And I think about like black women uh, growing up or kind of being in the, you know, you said you were in school from 90 to 94 and just that era of the 90s of being a young woman in that time and and talking about templates, like I was born in 86, but I remember the energy of the 90s and, you know, when you're young and the it's like almost either it's either a half generation ahead of you or a generation ahead of you where you see them doing things when you're younger and it's a vibe or it's a feel. And, and that 90s era of of people in 
the age you were was so specific. I know. It was amazing. Yeah. I didn't experience it as that, but I experienced it, you know, that, like, younger sight. And I just remember things around, like, women and, and you know, black people, for sure, and black women. And, wow, that's just, even just hearing about it. And, gosh, so you came here 96 or 97, and your first show was over at the Mark Woolley Gallery. What, where was that in the city? It was in the Pearl. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and to go back to the 90s, I mean, yeah, that was, I, maybe every generation thinks we're, we're devi- defining things, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's when we were saying racism equals prejudice plus power. We, like, this is, we were making those definitions mm-hmm. so that your generation could have clarity, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because we grew up in a in a time where people were still trying to convince us shit was not going on. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that hasn't changed, I know, but like, but uh, we were trying to cut through that BS mm-hmm. and be like, no, this is, how do you, you know, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as reverse racism. We started saying that, yeah. you know, and then we were coming up on the shoulders of the people who were in that. Do you know the anthology, This Bridge Called My Back? Mm-hmm. Yes. So that, those were our progenitors, mm-hmm. you know, and so that was my handbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I was reading them yeah. and like, and then we were trying to define all that. So yeah, and like, um, you know, at Brown, also the first like biracial students organization started. And I think I was sharing this with you before. Like I had this this wonderful woman. I loved her. I can't remember her name, but she was like, I'm writing my thesis on what it means to be a black person, a black a biracial person and a black woman. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those identities were they were everything to mm-hmm. us, you know, mm-hmm. trying to define it, trying to redefine how we even talked about people of color. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was that was back when people like, why, why can't, what do you mean people of color? They were having a struggle with mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Colored people? No. Like, that was a whole new idea. People were still, still trying to figure out African American. Mm-hmm. I remember joking that, like, when we started saying, like, you're going to call us African American now, then all the white people started to want to say Caucasian. Remember that? And they were like, I'm Caucasian. And I was like, what do you have, syllable envy? Uh, <laughs> like, you just want a longer word? Yeah. Like, I had to explain to people that Caucasian was not a synonym for white hmm. because Caucasian actually includes all the people south of the Caucasus Mountains, mm-hmm. which is all of India, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Like, that was the stuff we were trying to just, like, baseline educate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the generation before us was just trying to kind of get free. Like, please don't oppress us or beat us, you know, even wow. though we're still there. Mm-hmm. And then we were trying to, like, educate, yeah. you know, like, here's the language, here's the dialect that yeah. we're going to have around mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. And now you all are building on that. But, yeah, we were really trying to hammer that out. Yeah. And even from where I was at as somebody who was, like, I don't know, 4 to yep. 14, you yeah. know, in the 90s, Um I feel like energetically the that fight really came through. It seemed like y'all were really fighting. We and were. It was like serious and not a joke and and you know, and you don't romanticize it, but it was very inspiring for from whatever, you know, the the different movements, the the like zine movement. I don't know if I'm I always mm-hmm. never know if it's zine or zine. zine. But but yeah, just like all these various things and and I ethnic studies, we started ethnic studies. Mm-hmm. We were fighting for that all over the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but that energy really came through. And even thinking about, like, the uniqueness of, like, me making this photograph of this project you started in 2007, you know, with folks who were, uh, who were I guess, like, my age, you know, the the language. And, you know, it's just the 
I, everything isn't always, I don't know, the word doesn't always, isn't always lineage, but it's always like path or progression or steps you're, you're walking through and among. And yeah, it's, that's just something. But gosh, okay. Uh, well, thank you for sharing all of that. Thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was your, you know, I appreciate the specificity of your memories and, and I just, yeah, I mean, it's like being all the things is is race and gender and sexuality and like, oh gosh, when I was in college at Spelman, it was like learning, you know, my African, well, when it was African diaspora in the world, but it was also like, I took, I don't can't remember which class it was, but just learning about intersectionality and all the different things and you know, God, that who, was a new idea. Mamari Matsuda had this amazing article about intersection. We wasn't even called intersectionality. I forgot what she called it. Multiple consciousness. That's what okay. she called it mm-hmm. about being Asian American and a woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was like, that was like, again, we had one article. Okay. She said it. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and now it's like a word. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's something in that, like having the language Yeah, to, and I know language is a big part of your work and, uh, gosh, where am I going with this? Because I'm, I'm receiving what you're saying and it's churning and then it's like, ooh, what to ask? Um, gosh, so you're here. You're here. And what was your perception of this place and the culture that was here or wasn't here and you coming from the places you're coming from? Like, what was that like? It was disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um. First of all, let me say about memory, I think I just live so emotionally that I I do have a really detailed memory. I want to remember exactly what happened that made me feel how I felt. But anyway, um yeah, I felt like I had I had moved 20 years into the past when I came to Oregon. I used to say it all the time. It was really weird. I was like, where have these where have you guys been? Nobody had any of that language. Nobody had a had a grip on anything. The black people were saying crazy stuff to me. Like I hadn't been in a conversation about my skin color for a very long time. And I had I had this one woman, I remember I sat across, we must have gone out to dinner, and she said she gave me that whole, like, you had it easier because you were light-skinned thing. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I'm, I'm in the middle of a brown paper bag test. What is happening? And I remember I had to, like, process this for a while. And then I kind of came to a place of humor about it, which is how I kind of needed to get to everything. And I was like, can we all just agree that, like, slavery was bad? There wasn't, like, good slavery and bad slavery. Like, we have this whole thing, like, oh, the light-skinned people got moved into the house. I'm like, yes, where they were raped every freaking day? Like, what are you talking about? Like, tell me this is better. And, like, I I, I, bog- I boggled my mind that I was having to educate black people. That shocked me. So I never really felt settled or safe at the beginning here. I felt like every everybody was kind of funky. Um, cause it just, I, I said over and over again, I feel like I moved 20 years into the past. Like it just was, I, that's what I always said. So, um, I think that's part of why my work took such a turn towards race. Cause I just didn't want to live 20 years in the past. I, and for me, I felt I needed to then bring everybody up to speed so that I could have a normal life. And I think that's what I spent most of my artwork trying to do. It's like trying to create a world where I could just be free 
you know, which is not how it turned out. And I'm still on the soapbox about that, like how we need to let artists of color be free and not be expected to make work about race. I think we've kind of gotten to a trap. We can talk about that later. But um, yeah, it was disappointing. I felt really isolated and pretty freaked out. Mm-hmm. Wow. Gosh. <sighs> Sometimes I'm taking pauses because I'm thinking, I'm, I'm processing, I'm sensing. So when you're talking about that's how you kind of started to do more work about race, what was that trajectory like? Like, I know there are a few pieces you want to talk about. How did you, were there pieces before Rent a Negro or was that the one that was coming out from that moment? Or could you talk about either Rent a Negro or the pieces that, that led to that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, Rent and Negro was 2003. So if we back up to like 2000, I did the show at IFCC and then I was also recovering from sexual assault. So we did a show about sexual assault. I wrestled with that for a long time. It never, it came through out through my art for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by 2001, I did a big show about racism. And I, I'll be perfectly honest, like the Oregon and Portland just ate, ate, ate it up. They like, I got all these interviews and stuff because I was saying, talking about things that wasn't being talked about mm-hmm. in this town. And, um, and I knew that that attention was going to be important to build my career. So I think a part of me just kind of went in the direction where the media was going. Mm-hmm. There was a piece of that. Um, but I also had a lot on my chest, mm-hmm. you know. So I was like, well, let me get some of this stuff out. So then the next big show was my solo show at Mark Woolley Gallery, which was called Shift, We Are Not Yet Done. That was that opened September 2001. So 9-11 happened right mm-hmm. in the middle of my show. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to have work up about race during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did some audio pieces there. I had this piece called White Noise, which I actually installed in this giant table with electronics and lights. And you could put on these headphones and you would hear this white actress I had hired reading all the stupid th- questions white people ask black people. And then on that had white headphones and on the other side, brown headphones, which was my like laying on the floor talking about like how hard it is to keep making this work. Mm. And of course, nobody paid attention to that part. Mm. Right. Mm. I was like, wow, I don't even know if I'm a good artist because people are so blown away by the content. I don't even know if they think my work is any good, Mm. you know, and how I started to identify then like how this was impacting me. Mm. I had another piece in there was a quilt that I had made all these all these uh, pictures of. Um, all the black women people are always telling me I look like, mm. which I don't look like at all. Like Whoopi Goldberg, I don't look like her. <laughs> and then the bottom corner was Meg Ryan. She's white. People were always telling me, I was like, now that to me means you're looking at my face and the way my, she's like, people would say, you have the same smile. Now you're looking at me, right? Versus you're just saying you're another black woman with dreadlocks. So you look like all black people with dreadlocks. Mm-hmm. So I did that quilt. I did a, a thing called a race tag where I had a local printer print up those little hello, my name is tags, but Mm -hmm. it said hello, my race is. Mm. And I filled them in for people that said white, black, or other. Mm. And I made everybody who came to the show wear one. And and that was really interesting in the context of 9-11 because we didn't have this Arab consciousness. Mm. So other was a really important category Mm. to identify Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm. So that was the the first big show before then. And then... um, you know, you have this nice kind of break. Uh, by then, I think I was living 
on 21st off Alberta. So during that time, um, during like 2002, a few things happened. Like I started building the arts community in Alberta. Like we were just, all of us who were artists in that neighborhood, we just like, all right, let's, we're going to do an art show. My friend Nikki, she's like, my garage is empty. So we're like, great, we're going to do a show. That's how last Thursday got started. Mm -hmm. Like just all of us being like, yeah, let's just do several art shows on this day. Or like, that's when I met Brian Sareth, who started Disjecta and he like formed our first I was on his first board and he's mm-hmm. like, I want to do an arts organization. I'm like, great, let's do it. And it's like all that stuff was starting. And then I also joined, um, uh, I did my first set design and then I became a founding member of defunct theater. Mm-hmm. So all that's to say, like right around that time, the internet starts to develop and I start my first website. My downstairs neighbor makes my, my Damali IO.com webpage. And then I'm like, I need to edit it. So I learned how to like code in Dreamweaver. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this shit's fun. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. this is fun. I'm like, and this is interesting technology. Mm-hmm. And I was just like really interested in that piece. Rentanegro.com came out of my curiosity about technology mm-hmm. and how I could mess with it. Mm-hmm. So the internet was a baby, baby that I'll never forget the guy I was dating, not the dreadlock guy, yet another misguided white dude that I was dating (laughs) he was pretty nice but uh anyway I remember he came home he's like wow I just heard of the most interesting thing it's called a weblog like a blog that was a new word Mm -hmm. okay in 2003 so the internet was just baby 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 and then I was also feeling like simultaneously I used to call it my blender brain like my brain would chew on two things at once and then they would come out as a piece of art simultaneously like Everybody seemed to want me to show up as the black representative. Like my alumni organizations were always like, make sure you're there. I'll never forget. I walked into one uh, alumni, brown alumni gathering, all white people. And I, I was really into wearing pink and orange together at the time. And the host said, oh, we're so glad you're here. You're so colorful. And I was like, you mean black. I don't think you mean my clothes. <laughs> so I was tired of it. And so I was on the phone with my mom complaining about this and she said well you can't just be everybody's rent a negro and I went hmm well I have the internet maybe I can and that's how the piece got started I was like actually I'm gonna make some money at this if this is what I'm getting basically asked to do I need to pay my rent let's roll and that's that's how the piece got started and I had just I had so I I had just figured out how to do a form because I had built my theater company's webpage and we mm-hmm. had to have a form to buy tickets. I had figured out how to code a form. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, I could code a form where people mm-hmm. could fill it out. It's just nerd stuff. And that's how rentanegro.com got started. I just I just pulled in all the things that I had been being asked to do without being properly compensated. Mm-hmm. And it got matched up with this like internet form, making a form. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, I know I've, I know having talked to you about this before, I, I've heard it, but hearing it again or hearing it differently, it's, that's mind blowing. Yeah, I I feel incredibly lucky Mm -hmm. the way my brain works. And I think those of us at the, who were at the beginning of making internet art, Mm -hmm. all of our brains worked like that Hmm. Um, because there were only like, there were three people making websites about satirical websites about race. Mm-hmm. 
And then my my role model was someone had designed this hilarious web page called manmeat.com where mm. you could buy human meat and it was like you couldn't actually mm-hmm. but it was like extolling the virtues of mm-hmm. human and it was straight up Jonathan Swift style satire mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I loved it. I thought it was so fun. It was thrilling. So so I made Rent a Negro and then Keith Obadike mm-hmm. he I don't didn't know him. So mm-hmm. across the country, mm-hmm. he has the same basic things like, oh, eBay's weird. Yeah. What if I sell my blackness on eBay? Yeah. Hilarious, mm-hmm. right? So there now there's two of us. And then there was and we are the two of us are basically the two sites that are credited with kind of starting, you know, race on the net and mm-hmm. then also, you know, with some other works creating the genre of internet art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and then there was a a, a white brother and sister comedy team that did this hilarious website called blackpeoplelovus.com. It was so funny, but it wasn't considered art. Mm -hmm. But man, I read that every day. It was hilarious. My neighbor downstairs saw it was so funny. So he was always telling me what was on it. Oh God. So it was like, and so we all had senses of humor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we saw how absurd the world was becoming, Mm -hmm. I think. And the internet was such, it was absurd. Yeah. So we all had an absurdist kind of streak to us, and that's how, yeah. Wow, gosh. Once again, simmering, sensing. Okay, so you put this out, Mm -hmm. and, you know, from whatever I heard about it later, or, gosh, and I don't think it would have been that time. No, I do remember hearing somewhere about uh, Keith Obadike and that, I don't know when, you know, I was a teenager or something. Um, or in my early 20s later. Um, so I've seen your work, you know, you think about the artists and they're from where they are, but they're in a place and they're making work. And, you know, you're a person in a place, in an environment, in a in a neighborhood or a city or in various communities. And then there's the communities outside of that. And I feel like your work has reached outside of those specific environment that you were in when you were making these pieces what was your experience of the response whether it was portland oregon or the places beyond it to that piece yeah i think that's a good question um i mean i i i approach everything so naively because I have to. Otherwise, if I thought through the consequences, I'd never do anything. So I was just like, oh, la, 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 let's see what happens, you know. And I, I literally was thinking, okay, the people will fill in the forms and I will go do the performance of the rental, collect money, pay rent. I literally thought that was going to be the way until I got one of the first rental requests was um, uh I think they had said they were going to rape me. You know, what will you do with this Negro was one of the questions. Like, we're going to rape this person. And there was a, um, you know, there was the phone number and everything you would fill in. And I think a lot of people at that point even had autofill. Phone number was a 503 area code. And I was like, oh, I'm not safe. So that was my first, the very first rental request came in from Israel. <laughs> like, that was the first people who found my, it's been time zone thing. And so, but that was the one that I realized, yeah, this local piece is not safe. So at that point, I actually, um, I had to change the way the site was written um, because I couldn't, I realized I couldn't do that. So yeah, so that was that. And then the other, 
the other kind of two kind of camps of responses were people being like, oh, my God, this is hilarious. And this is exactly my experience. I got a lot of requests from other black people being like, how do I sign up and like, you know, become a rental? You know, like it was people were it was really funny. And then other the, the part that touched me the most is when people from other marginalized groups, deaf people, people in wheelchairs are like, this is my experience, too. I loved that. And then that was that was the joyful responses. And then the tough responses were, um, uh, you should be the first black person lynched by other black people. That was one of them. A lot of lynching, a lot of murder, a lot of rape. And it just came and came and came. Like it was, it was constant. And what was sad was that I was already stressed out from dealing with so much racism mm. you know my whole life but then it was so bad in Oregon and I was so like trying to get it like that and then I'd been just been sexually assaulted and um I'd gone through a massive depression er- earlier that year like I was low and I um you know I, I eventually I became extremely ill mm. and I couldn't get out of bed and I was, after years, took years to be diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, which Mm -hmm. I lived with for 13 years. Mm -hmm. It didn't go away until after I left. So it was rough. Um, It was rough. I definitely didn't expect so much anger. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, it's funny. You know, Mm -hmm. it's satire, you guys. Mm -hmm. But, um, Mm. you know... Mm -hmm. That's what mm-hmm. it. That's what it was. So it was. It was emotionally. You know, you say what was my response? It was just like this. It was a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. It was a mix mm-hmm. of like joy and then being like stunned. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Gosh. Wow. I feel so many different kind of ways from that. You know, because um, I know that piece in some shape as an artifact will be exhibited in the show in the Black Artists of Oregon exhibition. And you think about art as, and this is, maybe this has everything to do with internet art or conceptual art. You think about art as like, sometimes as an object, you Mm -hmm. know, like, oh, we will show this thing, you know, we will bring this from from however, figure out how to mount it. Um, But, how this was was something different for you for different people and the scope of it is almost unknowable mm-hmm. it's almost like wow um and now even just hearing you my understanding of it is very shifted you know um yeah, wow. Like, I, it's hard to show. Like, how mm-hmm. can we show it, right? Because mm-hmm. it is this, we're just going to have it on the website on a, you can't ever recapture. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, the art wasn't the website. It was the experience of people's minds. Yeah. That was the art. Wow. I think I'm going to ask a question, even though it's not going, I know I could go further into where I'm thinking right now, but it may circle back. What you just said about you can't ever recapture. And there were a few things that came up in the things we've talked about and even conversations we've talked about 
before when I asked, like, well, uh, where is your work at this time? Or what can we show in this show? And um, thinking about this exhibit that's thinking about black art history and black artists through timelines and where their work is and how it's collected or not collected, how it's preserved or not preserved, or even the sometimes, not in every case, but sometimes precarity of how black artists have existed as black people in this place, in this city, country, state, and um, the access we have or haven't had. And when I, you know, part of this exhibition is about recognition, not for representation only, because representation can be, be can be meaningless without power. You know, like how you said, I, you know, uh, like, I guess like racism equals prejudice and power. Like, representation doesn't mean anything without power and choice. That's true. Yeah. And and I'm um, interested in what it means to... And, hey, you know, that's... I don't think I've had an interview quite like this where I needed to kind of think through things a little bit more. And that's what you said conceptual art was, you know. But, like, I'm being... I'm being called to ask a question that's like, how do we preserve or keep or tell a story about what you were doing at that time, which was so, which, as you said, it was a a beginning point of, of like internet art, you know, and also work by women, work by black women is often not held or, given the criticism that it needs or put in the context that it needs to be or collected or recognized. And yeah. I see you as a real progenitor of so much. And, and I mean, like, not only in how the art object, object in quotes itself, but what you did, what you experienced. And, you know, black people are so complex. Like, I guess my question, if it was a statement question, like, what can you recapture? What do you... Okay, what can you recapture? What can't be recaptured? Mm. What wants to be lost? Like, mm. what, you know, um, with this piece being shown in this way in a museum, you know, this piece lived in the city at a point and now it's coming to a place where works are considered and I believe that piece should be collected. That's That's mine. That's my thought that in some way, like, also, and I know I'm going on and on, but it's just my response to what you're saying. Like, um, can internet art be collected? Mm-hmm. Would you want that? What if that wants collection or archiving or preservation or even thinking about how the context of looking back 20 years ago, you said that piece is from 2003. That was 20 years ago. Yes, yeah, the anniversary. Like, what about any of that stuff? Oh, no. I mean, thank you for saying all that because it's really validating because I was not validated. Let me start by telling, saying one thing that you, you reminded me of, and then we'll talk about the kind of collect, collectorial <laughs> possibilities. But one of the things that was really challenging was at the, at the same time, you know, there was this movement for like post-black art. Do you remember that? Oh, my goodness. 
hilarious here's a hilarious story so Thelma Golden I'm gonna call her out by name she was the curator of the studio museum in Harlem and she started this movement of like post-black like supposedly artists that were not making work about race but when you go to the show that was supposed to be the post-black show everything was about race it was really weird so I went to the show in New York I was not in it I was not invited to be in it and I ran into William Pope L at the show, who was a hero of mine, who actually did a performance piece in Portland where you danced with him. It was amazing. And I danced with him. And I was like, I'm thinking about finishing this piece called rentanegro.com. I'm not sure. And he was like, you got to finish that piece. Like he was seminal in that work coming to life. So I ran into him at the Studio Museum in Ireland while we were both viewing the post-black show. It was supposed to be here are the black artists in the country who are influential. She was, you know, she was the gatekeeper and the security guard walks by us and goes, how come you two aren't in the show? The security guard knew something was wrong, you know? But the curator, the gatekeeper, never validated anything I did. I mean, I think eventually I did a reading there of my, when I finally published a book and maybe. But so there was never a place where those of us who I think were really pushing were validated, or, or seen as what you're calling collectible is really that's what you're saying like like collectible meaning important mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I never got to that point meanwhile the, there was international coverage of this thing right mm -hmm. I was taking interviews all day long I had mm -hmm. to go be the the minister at my friend's wedding in Hawaii, I didn't have a cell phone. I had to buy a cell phone so I could do interviews in Hawaii about Rentonegro. It was massive. So, like, how you deny that that is an influential piece of art, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But that's what happened. It just got totally overlooked. Um, and so I'm honored to be in this show. One of the reasons, like, when you talked about what are we going to show... You know, I was like, damn it if I don't show Rent a Negro because people need to know where they came from. Mm -hmm. I'm like the grandmother being like, look, girly, you better know your history. That's how I feel because mm -hmm. it was not validated at the time mm -hmm. by the art culture. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, art historians are catching up. Mm -hmm. I'm in several art history books. I'm taught in a lot of schools. And that's helpful. Mm -hmm. That's like, okay, somebody figured out that this mattered. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, and then the then the question of how do you collect internet art, I think it's really interesting because you've got to put it in context, which is why I hope in this show there will be like a historical statement next mm -hmm. to the piece because it doesn't, like now it's going to look outdated because duh, it's like old, we're using the 2003 version. Mm -hmm. It's not even, mm -hmm. you know, it's out it's outdated stylistically, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, the fonts, you know, mm -hmm. are like old. Yeah. So... It's not people will look at this and not be impressed, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Because of the way our minds are so limited and mm -hmm. sleek, can't put mm -hmm. anything in context. So, yeah, I think you have to have some kind of way to demonstrate the impact because without me out there taking the blows for as long as I did, I got hate mail for 10 years. Mm. Then, you know, like that created a space mm -hmm. for artists, black artists after me to talk about certain things, just like the way, you know, Dick Gregory, he had to put his career down, mm -hmm. you know, like he got consumed by the social change mm -hmm. piece for, you know, so that I could, because he's the first one who made the joke about Rentonegro. He and Godfrey Cambridge. Those are oh. his, that's his phrase. Oh, wow. That's where my mom got it from. Okay, right. Wow. So I always credit them and oh my God. Side story. So, like, mm -hmm. I was on um, this really important historical black radio show doing an interview 
uh, with Joe Madison, I think his name is, out of D.C. So I'm on talking to Joe Madison, and Dick Gregory calls in. And he goes, this is a very funny lady. This is a funny lady. Whoa. Oh, Whoa. so happy. High praise. High praise. High praise. And I had, like, borrowed, like, I was standing on his shoulders mm-hmm. and Godfrey Cambridge's shoulders. She's also a really funny, unknown comedian. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and just taking what they did into the modern era. Mm-hmm. And now people are building on that. So, like you said, it's not necessarily lineage, but it's a narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we just need to hear mm-hmm. more of the narrative, really. The history, which we, you know, our world is, they're not good at connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. Wow. Gosh. What can you say? Well, wow. Me... Well, gosh. Well, I'm interested. And I know there's another piece we want to talk about before it kind of be do whatever we're going to do next, well, but... Yeah, we don't have to talk about the Valentine. Okay, well, we'll see, we'll see. Kay. What, in... Because I'm interested, you know, I... I, w- I was connected to you there. What you said about in terms of the, like, sometimes it's not lineage necessary, but narrative, but I was connected to the narrative physically through the artists, the, the folks who were at my school, you know, and how I ever heard about it. I can't remember how I first heard about it. But, like, you know... After certain folks pass, certain generations, things fall off and people don't know. But what does it mean? What would you like? How would you like your work, whether it's Renta Negro or um, other works? But I would say specifically that one because it is conceptual and it's not, it's objected. It becomes an object, but it's not a specific object. What does it mean for that piece to be? preserved or archived or how would you like I mean are you interested in being in like in not I guess in institutional collections like what would that mean I would love that Mm -hmm. to me it would mean um you know I never got rich or famous but to me my greatest pride is that I am in our history books Mm -hmm. I mean what else could that's the pinnacle mm-hmm. to me so if i can be collected and and in that same way if i can be placed in this in the space that i believe that piece should be placed mm-hmm. um yeah that i think that's all it would mean but it i yeah it would be great it would be it would be great if that was in collections and the great thing it's a digital work mm-hmm. it can be everywhere mm-hmm. it can be in every collection mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah um I don't know. I don't know how people are collecting um, digital works or what they deem, um, you know, valuable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no. I think, yeah, no, thank you. I have other thoughts, but maybe not here at this moment, but I hear that. It's just, there's something there. Um, gosh, well. Yeah, I think the thing, too, is I think, you know, and then I ran around the country for 15 years giving lectures about my work, mm-hmm. which turned into be lectures about racism, mm-hmm. mostly because that's where schools had funding, mm-hmm. right? So I turned, I showed up to talk about racism with slides and slides of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I think, not just in the art history context, but to see that a piece like that changed our culture. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I always say when I started that work, people were still whispering the word racism mm-hmm. or like stuttering to say black. Like, mm-hmm. 
They, mm-hmm. they, they weren't sure. Mm-hmm. And now it's like people say white supremacy. That that shocks me, you know, as mm-hmm. a, the per, as, as the person who is such a huge Bell Hooks fan. She mm-hmm. was one of the first people who's unrelentingly using mm-hmm. that phrase. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that's like common parlance now, mm-hmm. we did that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I would like to be recognized for. Like I'm I moved the needle, mm-hmm. you know, um, and sacrificed my life to it mm-hmm. you know I don't know what happened to the other artists who were doing this kind of work but the edge that I was on um and the and the edge that I pushed meant the pushback was really hard mm-hmm. and I had to give up my life and mm-hmm. career and I don't do I ha- I'm in hiding at this point <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. I live in a small town or I, the race comes up I leave the room I don't talk about it it made my life so difficult mm-hmm. so if that's what I had to go through, I would like there to be some acknowledgement mm-hmm. of the impact it had, mm-hmm. which was to change the way our culture operates. Mm-hmm. You know, not mm-hmm. that I'm the singular source of that, but I was a big part mm-hmm. of that um, change in the the way we talk about things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, wow. Well, I know there were a few other things we could have talked about in terms of this other piece or not, but what it, are there? Is there anything else you would like to share? As I think about if there's anything else I want to ask, is there anything else you would like to share about your journey or or what it means to be looking at that time? Well, no. Actually, I'm asking you about the question, but now I'm asking you a question. What does it mean to be looking back on that time from now? Like, and I, and you just said it to some degree, but in regards to conceptual art or internet art, and that was 20 years ago. Like, are there any thoughts there? And if there aren't, that's okay. No, I think I I feel really fortunate because I feel like I was able to make conceptual art at a time when it was still fresh. Mm-hmm. So the work we were making, the work I like the panhandling for reparations piece, which is something I did in four cities across the country. That was again, people were like, "Is this activism? Is it art?" You know, they didn't know where to categorize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my progenitors in conceptual art, like Adrian Piper, Marina Abramovich, God, she's my hero. I auditioned for her once. I she didn't hire me, <laughs> but um, I got to meet her though. Um, they were doing such powerful, Chris Burden, like powerful conceptual work. And now I think what I'm sad about is in our culture is that people making work now are so blind to their history that they think their ideas are new, right? So I did not. I knew that phrase, rent a Negro, had to come from somewhere and I also loved studying I the woman I did a sh- show next to me at Mark Woolley Julia Fenton she was an amazing artist and she had me over to her place and she said um asked me whether I was reading art magazines and stuff I said no I don't want to be influenced by other things you know I was that, like young smart and she said she literally picked up a pile of art in America's and dumped them on my lap she's like start reading and that changed my life because I found Sildo Mireles, who's this amazing Brazilian conceptual artist who blew my mind. And I realized I was in context. 
and I wanted to, to do as well as them. Mm-hmm. And now young artists, they don't have, they don't care. They're not, they really think their own ideas are like the first, they're like babies. Like they're, oh, they invented it. You know, like, like babies discovering things for the first time. Not that I think they're babies, but they're, you know, and that's a shame because one, you don't then pay homage to the people who came before you. Like there's almost never a time I do an interview where I don't mention Adrian Piper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and, and two, then you're not building. If you keep, re- like I can't tell you how many rent of whatever sites popped up after me, mm. hundreds. Mm. They're not building, they're just copying mm. and they think they're inventing. Mm. You gotta build, mm-hmm. you have to take it a step further, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. if I was up doing the same jokes, Godfrey Cambridge and, and Dick Gregory did this, I was doing the same Rentonegro jokes, I'm not building, but mm-hmm. because I take it into this other medium, I've taken it to a new place. Mm-hmm. So therefore now we're all in it together. They are now part of my work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's I think what's missing in terms of how conceptual art is created. Mm-hmm. And also I just think, We've got problems with copyright right now in our world. Um, um, I was telling somebody that I was having a conversation with two people the other day. And at the very first art lecture I gave, I uh, remember how everybody used to wear those ribbons, like a yellow ribbon for this and a pink ribbon for that. So I went to the the, the hair store and I got dread, fake dreadlocks. I made little ribbons out of dreadlocks. And I pinned little dreadlock ribbons onto everybody at my lecture. So fun. And the woman, one of the two women said to the other one, oh, you should do that. And I was like, what do you mean she should? I just did it. Mm-hmm. It's been done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, that. no, that's not how it works. Yeah, yeah. But that's lost. The memory is lost. Nobody mm-hmm. knows I did that. Only mm-hmm. those people who were there. So mm-hmm. I think we've got to find a way to preserve memory mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. so that we can build and grow mm-hmm. and not just re- recreate and think it's original, which yeah. I think is a big problem in the arts industry all over. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, these p- people thinking it's... Their ideas are new. And we're at a stage now in in art creation where if you have an idea, you better check to see who already did it because Mm -hmm. it's very hard to make something new. Mm -hmm. Very, very hard. So, yeah, I always did that. Like, um, you know, what's out there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and we don't do that. We're just so Mm self-absorbed as a culture. We really think we're super original. And at this point in our culture, I mean, I've been a culture watcher for years. We are not original at all. Hmm, hmm, hmm. At all. (laughs) So we need to be saying, yeah, I'm doing a cover of this art piece, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and here's the person who did it first. Wow. But maybe I'm just old. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, gosh. I'm old and cranky. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. Preserve so we can Build. build and grow. Wow. Well, I appreciate you so much and your thoughts and experiences and consideration and how you think and share. Uh, This has been so generous. Thank you. And I, um, yeah, I... I say this, I'm saying this, I say this to every black artist that I'm in here with, but I hope you get everything that you need and want. Thank you. For your works that you made, for your life, for your consideration, not just your works, but you as the, as the artist, as the thinker, as the builder, like, you know, I know the arts get, can arts, art 
works can get preserved, but the artists need care and consideration and support and new, like newness, you know, mm-hmm. openness and um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I mean, thank you, because that's what you're doing, right? That's when I see the way you work. It's in everything you do is to say, how do I share this? How do I make, how do I share this with as many people as possible? Like when you get a, um, you know, some kind of boon in your life, it seems to me like your instinct is instantly, how many people can I share this with? How can I take care of more people? And that's what I see you doing in this show. Like, how do I, like, how can we acknowledge and care for, and I'm with you, like the Black Artists of Oregon show, it's, to me, I hear it being like, here's all the people you didn't even know you had. You know, (laughs) Oregon, you had all these people you didn't even know who have been doing huge things all over And that's what this show is about. And that's a real generosity to everyone who's in the show to be validated in that way. So, yeah, you really, you walk your talk. Thanks. I appreciate that. I appreciate that from you for real. Uh, Gosh, gosh. Well, I'm excited for you to be in those shows. And for, you know, like I said, the narrative, the story we're telling and how we're connecting the dots and Gosh, just just big appreciations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Portland Art Museum podcast. My name is DJ Ambush, the producer of this podcast and the executive director at 96.7 FM, The Numbers, a community-based radio station here in Portland with the focus on representing black culture and music. The Numbers FM has been a community partner in residence at the Portland Art Museum since 2020. On the next episode, you'll hear from Richard Brown, an activist and photographer who has spent his multifaceted career supporting and documenting black life and community in Portland. Black Artists of Oregon is sponsored in part by a Museums for America grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services and grants from Meyer Memorial Trust and the Terra Foundation for American Art. For more information about this exhibition, visit us online at portlandartmuseum.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you know when that episode is released. We appreciate that you've chosen to listen to this podcast. We would also appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review this episode. That is if you're using Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thank you for listening.